Good morning. Three minutes after 8 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Microsoft goes into the cloud to name a new CEO and chairman. Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates out. Satya Nadella and John Thompson in. Wall Street bounces back after a torrid day of selling yesterday. The yen weakens and Asian equities move higher. A few teases for your breakfast this morning. I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, I get energized when I see people achieve high standards in anything. I buy more books than I can finish. I sort of sign up for online courses uh, more so than I can actually finish them, but I love it. So a curious fellow, that's Satya Nadella, the new CEO of Microsoft. In some other news, the U.S. Congress officially passes the Farm Bill, and the Congressional Budget Office says Obamacare will probably cost the U.S. workforce some two million full-time jobs jobs that over the next three years on the markets well for one thing the Hang Seng index is officially in correction mode yesterday's sell us sell-off took us down 11 percent from the high late last year and we get this second tease for the morning China, you know, is it 6%, is it 7%, is it 5%? You know, I call China the mystery meat of uh, emerging market countries. Nobody knows what's there, and there's a little bit of baloney. Uh, so we're just going to have to wonder going forward through this year as to the potential problems in China and other emerging markets. That's the bond king, Bill Gross. And here he talks about what's behind the selling in January and early February. Risk assets, uh, financial systems are unstable with excessive risk-taking on one end and low returns on the other, which in turn encourages more risk-taking. It's sort of like uh, Soros' reflexivity. Once you get the uh, levered system going, it, it hardly knows uh, when and where to stop. Yeah, that's Bill Gross again. We'll get a little bit more from him later in this program. We'll also hear from Richard Jerram at the Bank of Singapore on whether the recent sell-off is a big buying opportunity. We'll also talk to Raul Chada from Mirai Asset Management on how homogenous emerging markets are, not very, according to Mr. Chada. And we'll also be getting some of the latest local trends from Andrew Sullivan over at Maybank Kim Eng Securities. Well, our top story this morning, Microsoft has named Satya Nadella the chief executive officer of the company. Mr. Nadella is an insider. He's been at the company for some 22 years. He's said to be well-versed in business technology and, like the new chairman, John Thompson, is an expert on cloud computing and, as we heard earlier, kind of learning junkie. And it's not just the learning for learning's sake. What I think we all in business in particular thrive in is applied learning. Uh, to be able to take that, uh, create products, create programs, approaches to how we work with customers and partners, uh, and excelling in them, and being able to sort of both uh, do that and more importantly learn from others who are doing it is what I would say uh, defines me the most. Here's how Asian markets are moving at the moment. The Nikkei has rebounded some 211 points to 14,219. Uh, that's a gain of 1.5%. Australia was a little bit higher, but now has just dipped under uh, the flat line, down two points at 51.11. Although the Australian dollar did strengthen quite a bit overnight, the Australian dollar 89.09 cents. A little bit more on why later. In Seoul, the Kospi is up 10 points, a gain of six-tenths of one percent at 1897.
So gold moved down overnight, now 1253 an ounce, and oil prices are now $105.78. Let's go now to Wall Street. Stocks rebounded there. Investors seized on corporate earnings and economic data as kind of an excuse to move back in after yesterday's 320-point sell-off on the Dow. Yum Brands up more than 9% after its profit in the latest quarter beat estimates. The S&P 500 up not 0.8% at 17 The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 72 points to 15,445. Volume was heavy, 21% above the three-month average. Let's go back to Bill Gross. He says the anxieties will stay with us for a while. We have a highly levered uh, global financial system with hedge positions that are moving back and forth based on emerging market countries and their growth rates or expected growth rates. And when those change, then positions change. And as levered positions change, you've got a lot of volatility and reflexivity, as uh, Mr. Soros would have said. He's a bond guy, even though PIMCO has diversified of late into stocks and other assets, but he is uh, often charged with talking up his own book, in, in other words, uh, being positive on bonds. Credit is higher uh, up on the, uh, the uh, stability hierarchy, I suppose. It usually is thought of as a flight to quality, not necessarily corporate bonds or high-yield bonds, but treasury bonds. And when investors want to you know, park money in a supposedly safe haven, and we know that bonds aren't uh, necessarily safe all the time. They weren't in 2013, but that's where money goes. Money comes back to the the center, so to speak, of the global financial network, and the center at the moment, you know, are uh, one, two, three developed countries that, uh, you know, certainly includes the United States. And so we see treasuries being bought, treasury rates coming down under the assumption that the Federal Reserve will stay put for perhaps a long, long time. And what he means by that uh, in staying put, not on uh, the tapering, but just that they will keep interest rates at uh, between zero and 25 basis points for a long time, the next several years. So what he's doing is he's buying uh, one, three, five and seven year treasuries uh, uh, in on the idea that uh, at least the principal will remain stable and you get at least a slight return. Well, here's an interesting factoid. Uh, so Bill Gross, you know, still in that kind of risk off category, but but here's an interesting fact. Uh, during the recent bull market, meaning over the past several years, the Dow rose an average of 0.5% after any 300-point sell-off. And that's precisely how much it rose in this latest session. So if you're bullish or if you like to stay bullish, you've got an excuse. We came back half a percent just like we did every other time that you had a 300-point sell-off. So maybe it's you know back to the races. So let's go to one more comment from Mr. Gross before we get to our first guest, Mr. Sullivan. And uh, he's talking about his uh, famous term that he coined along with uh, um, Mohammed El Aryan, the new normal. The new normal really didn't apply to the equity market last year, did it? Um, you know, 30% was certainly not normal. Uh, but what we see going forward is a, a global marketplace and a global economy where growth is slow. And to the extent that uh, financial asset prices like stocks uh, and other risk assets have anticipated thoroughly, you know, that growth rate, that's always a subjective judgment. And it was, you know, uh, six to eight weeks ago. Um, to the extent that, though, that that growth rate comes down, then risk assets you know, become at risk and more volatile. So I think it's all dependent upon you know, a growth rate on the, the global economy and certainly in the United States. We saw some bad numbers over the past few days and we wonder whether or not that 3% growth rate in 2014 is for real. 
So Bill Gross from PIMCO. And just one last note, in other financial markets, European stocks fell for a third straight day. Oil rebounded, and as we mentioned, gold moved lower. Good morning now to Andrew Sullivan, Director of Sales Trading at Kimeng, at Maybank Kimeng Securities. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So, um, you know, you've got strategists at Goldman Sachs, uh, AMP Capital Investor, J.P. Morgan, telling clients, hang in there, don't, don't panic, don't get nervous. Um, what's your point of view? Well, I think that's always the way. I mean, that equities is part of a balanced portfolio, so you, you have to maintain at least an element of exposure to them. But, you know, we've seen this very similar sort of situation to what the one we're going through last year, where we hit 24,000 into the year end, sold down into the Chinese New Year, had a small rally and then sold down through to the middle of the year, really, before rallying back again. And, and it's, it's the fact that at the moment, you know, global expectations are actually quite weak. And we've got the U.S. still uh, going through a slow recovery. We've got Europe improving, certainly, on what we saw it last year. And still questions over China. But I think the, the key thing for China is the fact that the new regime is putting all the building blocks in place. It's just going to take time. Hong Kong, maybe as the sick man... Uh, you had um, about a 7% sell-down in the Dow, but uh, U.S. markets were up about 30% last year. We just had 11% pullback here in the Hang Seng Index, and we were basically flat last year. So what's going on? Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that just reflects I mean, the flat at the end of the year, but there was a huge range in between what we'd seen at the beginning of the year of being around 24,000 to the lows uh, halfway through the year back. Yeah, and recovering back at the end of the year. And, and it's, I guess, a nature of, of the markets at the moment. The, the other thing is that, you know, maybe five years ago, everybody's favorite stocks were the, the big blue chip property companies. Uh, and this year, those will be in the doldrums as the uh, Hong Kong government, you know, sets out its policy for, uh, you know, trying to contain prices. It's a very good point, Andrew. Uh, last year, if you bought at the beginning of the year and then sold around about the time Ben Bernanke talked about tapering, and then you bought back in after the sell-off after the summer, you probably had a pretty enormously tasty year, and now we've just had a sell-off. So you think it's a good time to go in and buy Hong Kong stocks now? Uh, if not, maybe the um, uh, maybe not the uh, Hang Seng Index constituent stocks. Well, that's it. I mean, it's still going to be very much a year for stock picking and looking at individual companies, um, and, and obviously that's why we we employ a number of analysts to try and give us direction there. Um, but there are still good opportunities in some of these companies. We see a lot of op- upside for you know, some new areas like um, China Lot Synergy, the lotteries within China, which could well be the new Macau-type stocks uh, for this year. Um, some of the energy stocks, you know, we like New Ocean Energy. Um, it's had a good run, but you know, our analysts feel that there's far more upside ahead. But it's a matter of doing the research on the companies and, and finding those that are well positioned. What are your analysts saying about slowing growth in emerging markets, particularly slowing growth in China? Well, I think you know, slowing growth in China is, is a relative uh, issue. I mean, if we're still talking about 7% growth, that's much better than we're seeing in the U.S., where we're, we're expecting something in the 2 to, to 4% range. So it, it's all relative. But again, you know, it's a matter of being specific on stocks, stocks that are going to do well in China, sectors that are going to do well in China. I mean, we still have concerns you know, over things like the coal stocks. But as I say, you know, there's interest in things like the lottery stocks. So it's, it's still being very much more selective than just picking generalized markets, I think. 
Uh, here's something uh, to chew on, Andrew. Give me your opinion on it. Uh, if we if we stay in a in a relative risk off period, um, if you look at the property and the bank stocks, they did so poorly last year. But now you've had interest rates come down. You know, just a day ago. You had the yield on the 10-year Treasury down almost 50 basis points from its uh, 303 top. And shouldn't that be good for the REITs, for the utilities, for some of the stodgy, well, even the property companies that would do better with lower interest rates? Um, And is it possible that the high-flying Internet and Macau stocks get slammed, that money goes into those other guys? Money will always rotate from one sector to another. That's certainly true, and uh, as people's perceptions change, I think the the issue for the REITs and a number of the the property investors, and, and even for the developers, is whilst currently rates are low, the expectation is that as recovery continues, those rates will be be rising. I mean, it'll be something that people will be very closely watching will be uh, the Bank of England statement this week, uh, where we've had very much more positive uh, information about the recovery there, uh, and the concerns as whether Mark Kearney um, raises or indicates that he's going to raise interest rates sooner rather than later. All right. Thanks very much, Andrew. Andrew Sullivan, uh, Director of Sales Trading at Maybank Kim Eng Securities. 16 minutes now after 8 o'clock. We say good morning to Richard Jerram, Chief Economist at the Bank of Singapore. Mr. Jerram, good morning. Morning. So I think I've read of late that in spite of some of the recent troubles, 14% sell-off in the Nikkei and really quite a whack yesterday. Don't give up on Japan just yet. Is that your position? Yeah, I mean, generally, we're, we're advising investors to be overweight developed markets. Uh, we think there's a positive policy story. We think there's a positive growth story. And I think in the case of uh, Japan, uh, you can certainly see there are still plenty of uh, monetary policy tailwinds that should be giving you support. They should be driving the yen lower, improving competitiveness, and, and driving the economic recovery, as we've seen over the past year. Uh, so I think you've, you've seen a short-term sort of safe haven uh, flow into the yen that's, that's hurt the market, but I don't think that this has brought the story to an end. So do you think this year it'll be risk on and we'll go back to kind of the way it was last year? Well, I think uh, broadly it's clearly going to be bumpy. I think we're trying to uh, emphasize that recent periods of risk off uh, across the world, uh, you have had a clear policy solution to the problems. Uh, for example, in Europe, uh, providing liquidity, and Draghi saying they'll do whatever it takes. I think at the moment, if you look across the, the confluence of problems in the emerging markets, there isn't a, a single obvious uh, policy remedy to these, these issues. So I think it's going to be bumpy uh, for, for a while to come yet. The point that Bill Gross was making, which seems quite sensible, is that now to protect their currencies, emerging markets are having to raise interest rates. That's slowing growth. You see slowing growth in in China. And you've got a lot of levered positions around the world because people borrowed money in the low yielding currencies and they invested everywhere. So you've got slower growth, highly leveraged positions. You know, that's that kind of augurs for risk off. Uh, well, you have slow growth in the emerging markets, but you certainly have a growth pickup across the developed markets, and that nets out to global growth expectations this year uh, being substantially better than they were last year. I mean, whether that one-for-one translates into, into risk-on you know, isn't entirely clear, but I think it does mean that you should have a, a positive earnings story in the developed world. I mean, the U.S. economy this year is going to grow one, one half percentage points faster than it did last year. And I think that should 
really be supportive of the overall global growth environment. And if we could look at Japan uh, more specifically, are you um, expecting the domestic companies to do better or the exporting companies to do better or both? Well, I think there are two stories in Japan. I think one is a, a shift to a more sensible monetary policy, and that's going to drive the yen down to 110, 120, uh, probably over the next uh, year or so. Uh, and I think that to us is a high probability story, and it points towards uh, export companies uh, gaining competitiveness and, and, and seeing their profits improve quite well. Sorry, sorry uh, another... just to cut you off there for a moment. You say a more sensible monetary policy, uh, the kind of quantitative easing that we see? Yeah, I mean, Japan has had a, a crazy monetary policy for most of the past 20 years, and I think they've now moved to a more orthodox anti-deflation policy, and they're reaping the benefits of that. Okay, so in a, in a period of deflation, in other words, quantitative easing makes sense. It, it becomes sensible. Yeah, I mean, you can debate the merits of quantitative easing and the effectiveness of it uh, in the case of the, of the U.S., but I think the, the Bank of Japan is sending a fairly clear message that it intends to shift away from persistent deflation, and uh, deflation is very corrosive to uh, the corporate sector. So I, I think if they can change expectations and have some success on that, and I think a weak currency is a big part of uh, the story, uh, then I think that should have a high impact on the profitability. Okay, so if you could continue your thought there where I cut you off, you're talking about uh, looking at uh, the breakdown between exporters and uh, domestic consumption stories. Sure. I mean, the domestic story, uh, to some degree, depends on the lift coming from the export sector, but I think it also depends on the ability of the, the Abe government to deliver on its growth strategy. Uh, some people label uh, structural change. I think that's rather more uh, dubious. It's notable in the first year that their, uh, their achievements are almost non-existent. And so I think it's a, it's a rather lower probability story. I think our preference is to stick with the higher probability story of the yen weakening and that uh, lifting the, the manufacturing side of the economy and a, and a few parts of the domestic economy as well. And what impact will the higher VAT taxes have in April uh, be? What would that impact be on the uh, local economy? Well, sales tax is going up by 3% in April, and that, that certainly has uh, frightened a few people because the last time they increased, uh, they did have a recession. But I think there are false memories of the previous recession. At the time, the, the sales tax increase was only about one-third of the fiscal tightening. There was tax increases, there were spending cuts as well. Uh, it seems to be stuck with a disproportionate amount of the, the blame. And, of course, after the, the sales tax increase in, in 97, it was followed by the Asian financial crisis as well. So I think you would expect you get a, a few... Uh, bumps in spending patterns, but I don't think that it's going to be uh, really disruptive to the overall path of recovery. You seem a pretty relaxed, um, confident fellow. Um, what keeps you up at night? Not necessarily with Japan, but just maybe maybe uh, looking at Southeast Asia, where you're based. Yeah, I mean, you can never be too relaxed, um, but, it, but I think some of the big uh, risks we've been worried about in the world in the last four or five years have diminished. I think what worries me most uh, at the moment is China. I think there's, a, there's an inconsistency in the expectations that they can maintain growth and they can deleverage the banking system. I mean, as far as I can see, there's a massive bad debt problem in China. I think once they start to resolve that, you'd expect to see uh, a lot of pressure on investment spending and, and the growth rate is going to slow down substantially. Um, exactly whether they can manage that uh, smoothly or not, I think is, uh, is very doubtful. But I think if they manage it smoothly, uh, you get a substantial growth slowdown. If they manage it badly, uh, you get something rather worse than that. So I'd say that's what worries me the most. But the, the timing of it 
is to a degree political. Uh, and so I, I think it's not something you worry about uh, happening necessarily tomorrow, but it's, it's certainly out there in the reasonably uh, near future. Okay, uh, Mr. Jerem, thank you very much for joining us here on uh, Money for Nothing on Radio 3. Thank you. Richard Jerem, Chief Economist at the Bank of Singapore. Good morning to you. It's uh, 23 minutes after 8 o'clock. Uh, looking at 10-year Treasury uh, yields, uh, we mentioned yesterday that, uh, you know, with uh, the safe haven buying going on, the yield had dropped down to 2.58%. And I'd mentioned that earlier it had been up to 303 uh, late last year. Well, today uh, the yield moved up five basis points, now at 2.63%. Well, Asian currencies haven't been slammed the same way as those of Argentina, Turkey and other formerly favored emerging market stories such as Russia. Is the relative strength in Asia showing us something about a kind of resilience here? We're joined now by Raul Chada, Chief Investment Officer at Murray Asset Management. Raul, good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for uh, for coming in. Um, which currencies uh, do you do you like in this environment where risk is is really being assessed almost on an hourly basis? Which currencies in Asia do you like? I think when we've got to look at Asia, we've got to look at uh, the economies from a current account surplus basis, and that's why we've seen Asia relatively held on better from mid of last year because we've seen central banks in vulnerable currencies like India, Indonesia raise interest rates, slow down, trade deficits have come to near surplus for some something like Indonesia. So I think Asia becomes relatively less vulnerable compared to a Turkish lira or a South African rand or some of these LATAM currencies. And in Asia, again, um, RMB should continue to hold on uh, well. We've got uh, Korean won, Taiwanese uh, dollar, where there is a current account surplus. These economies should hold on well. They should, but isn't it true that, for instance, the won has taken a pretty big hit, even with much better fundamentals than a place like Indonesia? Yeah, some bit of a sell-off is but but natural. But again, if you've got a longer-term time frame, um, 6 to 12 months, I think markets go back to fundamentals. And you look at one particularly, there's a 6 to $7 billion monthly surplus. So I think things are a lot more better than they were in 2008. And what about for places like Hong Kong and China that um, are essentially, well, Hong Kong is fixed and China floats a little bit? Yeah, but then, uh, again, when in China we see a large amount of surplus. So clearly what you're going to see is less RMB appreciation, but a significant depreciation is fairly unlikely. So you don't see depreciation, but you don't see much movement upward. Uh, for the year 2014, how much do you think the RMB will move? I think it's not going to be beyond 2 or 3%, because clearly there's a pressure on uh, the exporters over there who are finding themselves uncompetitive with the rest of the regional currencies being depreciated. So clearly, I think the movement is going to be a lot more gradual this year compared to what we saw the years before. Okay, so do you think that the Chinese uh, workers are uncompetitive because the currency has gone up a lot or because um, salaries have gone up quite a bit? It's, it's a combination of both these things. So you've got currency, which is relatively helpful firm compared to the other regional currencies. You've seen wage pressure, which is far more than the regional. And I think that's where we've seen some of these uh, manufacturers move inside, move from the coastal region to uh, again the western part of the country where wages are lower, or they move up the value curve. And some of the low-end companies or manufacturers have moved to uh, countries like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, etc. 
Yeah. Let's talk for a moment about India. Um, a good new central bank chief there. Uh, is he making the right moves? Yeah, clearly. I think uh, that's what we believe, that for Indian currency to bottom, you required rates to go up. You wanted uh, trade deficit to come down, which has come down from a monthly $18 billion number to a $10 billion. You need to beef out dollar reserves, which the central bank did through the NRI bonds, which raised about $35 billion. So that's that's really the reason why rupees uh, behave so well in the, in the current uh, um, turmoil. So again, we remain fairly confident. And as we see it forward, I think what happens for India is somewhere around May, June, we see the inflation come down from a 10% level to a 6 to 7% level. Currency being stable, inflation coming down. I think second half of the year, we can look for some rate cuts in the economy. Do you see the Indian stock market then outperforming China, let's say, over 2014? Our call is that China and India are going to be the two key markets for the region. And for India, I think a significant event is elections. So should we see a pro-business government getting voted back to power in the elections in April, I think India can do well. Market's not gone anywhere in the, for the last two, three years. And uh, investors should like. And our basic view is not all emerging markets behave alike, um, like in 2000. The uh, kind of uh, consumers of commodity do a lot better than the producers of commodities, and India benefits over there. For China, again, it's a different thing. As you see, China doing the rebalancing well, uh, data not collapsing with this tightening which is going on the economy, people get a lot more confident on China. And a lot of this slowdown is there in the valuations. Nobody's expecting 7% growth, but if the economy chugs along at anywhere around 6, 6.5% growth, I think uh, there would be enough takers. And you don't see an exogenous event, uh, some sort of crisis uh, that emerges from the shadow banking industry or uh, a property collapse. You don't see that. I think you'll see some bit of NPS here and there. But if you look at what the current valuations for some of these Chinese banks are being factored in, it's to the extent of 8 to 9% system gross NPS. I think that level of risk looks unlikely with the global recovery underway. So the leadership has done the right thing, that they've got global recovery as a backdrop. And within that, they're doing the necessary rebalancing through tightening, moving away from investment-led growth to a more consumption-led growth and a more steady economy. What makes you think there's some sort of global recovery underway? The latest uh, reports we've seen, economic reports out of the United States have been actually weak, and we just thought that we could extrapolate from, you know, two quarters ago to figure out growth for 2014, but, you know, is it built on a house of sand, or is it solid in your view? No, I think the latest data which we saw had a lot to do with this winter which was around. So if you look at, if you just go back, and a lot of this high-frequency data can be misleading, so you've got to look at a three, six-month trend, and if you build up on that trend, you look at housing starts, you look at employment number, you look at ISMs, uh, again, the intention for corporate CAPEX, all that is steady and trending upwards. So I think uh, the recovery remains on track, so what we saw was just a blip in recent times, and because the market did well, some bit of a correction was inevitable in this. Okay, so just a final question. Um, what's your single best investment idea at the moment? We, we continue to like the names which have done well for us last year. So let's say for Hong Kong, China would be some of these gaming names, internet names. And I think should one see these names correct a bit more over the next two, three months, these names along with clean energy still remain attractive. So, and as So w did you say Chinese internet names or just generally internet uh, No, no, the Chinese internet names. Oh, so yes. China, Chinese internet names. And let's say, again, if you get more... Come on, name a couple of names. Name names real fast. Uh, unfortunately, because of compliance, we, can, we, can't, we, can, we, we can't do that. Right. But outside that, let's say, in Indian exporters, uh, again, th those names are decent. Pharmaceutical names are different. So you look at three, five-year 
uh, stories and which one gets at attractive valuations because these names had done well oh, in the okay. second half. Oh, man, I could, I could talk to you all day. I'd probably call you up at your office and you'd say, hey, I'm too busy. Uh, get it back <laughs> on the radio. So next time, Raul, thank you very much. Uh, Raul Chad, there, the uh, Chief Investment Officer at Murray Asset Management. Money for nothing. The show is over for today. We'll leave you with big rallies uh, right now in the region. The Nikkei up 216 points. Uh, Seoul is up as well. Actually stumbling a little bit in Australia, but the Australian dollar is pretty solidly higher, up to 89.12 cents. Well, the weather today, we've had a bit of a change. Cloudy with some rain patches expected. Maximum temperature about 18 degrees. And looking forward for the next couple of days, really misty in the latter part of the week, becoming cold early next week. Well, that's our program for today. Money for Nothing. The news is coming up next. 8.32. Here is Etienne Lamy-Smith. Hong Kong's diplomatic sanctions against the Philippines have come into effect. From today, Philippine officials and diplomatic passport holders no longer enjoy visa-free entry to the territory. The measures were introduced in the wake of the country's refusal to apologize over the Manila bus hostage crisis in 2010, in which eight Hong Kong people died. Our Manila correspondent, Mike Barker, has more on the reaction in the Philippines. It is being talked about, and the mood seems to be hardening here, to be honest. You know, there was a lot 